0: Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, if you will. If you're visiting, we launched a series two weeks ago. It's online, uh, whatever you have missed. And if you don't have your Bible along, we'll place it on the screen for you. Um, By way of an introduction, and especially uh, if you've missed the first couple weeks, we've been in what we might call a character study on a, a king, uh, one that is recognizable in history, King Xerxes the Great. He's actually, I can't talk this morning. I am trying to formulate my words and they are not. Com- Can will somebody bring me another cup of coffee, please? Um, no, no, I'm not serious. <laughs> but, but thank you for being on top of things, Christine. Um, maybe you'll be the volunteer of the month for uh, November. All right, okay, good, yeah, <laughs> send us a picture. <laughs> so Xerxes, uh, the terrible, we might call him, um, because of the way he lived, but he's actually Xerxes uh, the Great, or that is how history has it. His Persian name is Ahasuerus, that's what you'll see when we read along in today's text, verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated. So let's just stop there. And ask this question. How many of you have ever been angry? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. <laughs> I'll have an altar call at this time. <laughs> come, come forward, repent of our sins. Um, you uh, maybe know someone who has one of two emotions. They're uh, either asleep or angry. <laughs> some people are just like that. They're just mad all the time. Um, maybe we would say to a lesser degree, some of us are, are grumpy. Or irritable. Um, How many of you have made a dumb decision when you were angry? Okay, that happens, right? (laughs) We break things, right, Craig, (laughs) when when, when we're angry. Um, It took Xerxes only four years after, um, I should say four years after assuming the throne to, to make a really dumb decision when he was angry. In last week's text, he loses his temper, he divorces his wife, and he's completely now depressed, he's not doing well, and he's sitting around, excuse me, I meant to say four years between divorcing his wife and making the the dumb decision he's going to make today, and he's sitting around saying, woe is me, Um, what am I going to do next? When his anger had abated, the text says, he remembered... Vashti, that's the wife, that's the queen he divorced. He wakes up, man, I really miss my wife. How many other people have done that? You're dating someone, you marry someone, you get frustrated and angry, you just get rid of them. You end things, you break it off, and then later you think that was a dumb idea. What was I thinking? It wasn't that bad. Why did Xerxes break up with Vashti? Because she told him he was wrong. If he would have repented, he would have kept his wife. And generally speaking, church, lots of people around the world, um, and I would say some in Stratford, Wisconsin, are choosing between the same two options right now. Repenting and keeping their spouse. Or I should say, repenting and keeping your spouse, and not repenting and losing your spouse. Same two options Xerxes faced. He chose to hang on to his sin. He remembered Vashti and what she'd done and and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, okay, aha, right? Let's stop there again. Um, If you're in a tough spot, if you're blue, who don't you want to take advice from? Okay, Young men, okay? He's in need of counsel with rare exception. Um, seeking the counsel of young men can, can get you in trouble. I know the scriptures say, let no one look down on you because you're young. I agree, but there's a number of other times in the scriptures where young men are not the most, uh, what we would say, well-rounded decision makers. They just not, they're not. They're strong. They're, they're dumb, <laughs> generally speaking. Young men said, and I'll paraphrase, let's go down to the sorority house and let's find some beautiful young virgins for the king. Verse 4, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. And you know what? Um, we all get into these places where, particularly in times of vulnerability, um, We're susceptible to bad counsel. We want to hear what we want to hear, don't we? So we'll follow whatever sounds good, whatever tickles, whatever benefits us. And I told you last week, the people you ought to be listening to in life are the people that have the courage to say what to you. No. Not the people who are telling you yes all the time. And so, um, here we go. Great King Xerxes ruled a kingdom of three million square miles isn't doing so great. He's depressed. He's discouraged. His life has just crashed in on him. No one else is to blame but himself. He's harbored pride. He's been foolish. He's done this to himself. How did he get to this position? Here's our first big idea for the morning. Those who chase glory only get misery. Those who chase glory only get misery. Up until this point, who has Xerxes lived for? He's lived entirely for him. He sits on a throne. He calls the shots. He calls himself the king of all kings. Um, we were, as human beings, created to glorify, created to worship, created To adore. That's the way God designed us. And Xerxes, as well as people today, are in danger when they turn the direction of that glory inward to themselves. It belongs to God. We can't make the mistake of of aiming our exaltation at ourselves. We aren't to be the recipients of it. Only God is. The the glory is not intended for us. I heard one uh, pastor say, if you live for your own glory, you'll be impossible to live with. And that's true. Xerxes rejects his own wife. Four years pass. Herodotus, our extra biblical historian, tells us that in those four years, he also lost a war so Xerxes' father Darius the only military conquest that he did not make is he could not conquer do you know this Dwayne the Greeks give Dwayne a hand that is stellar history right there nice job Dwayne he couldn't conquer the Greeks and so who do you think who do you think Xerxes wants to conquer the most he wants to one-up daddy right? So he sets out to conquer the Greeks. It's the highest on his list of priorities. And he assembles the largest army, they tell us, in the history of mankind. And he marches from Persia to Greece to supersede his father's glory. And he was defeated. And two and a half thousand years later, in films like... 300. Creators are still depicting that event, that loss. It lives on. He was absolutely humiliated. In fact, it's reported that he told one of the Greek commanders, you need to surrender your arms, and the soldier said, you'll need to come take them. And that to this day, there is a regimen of, of the Greek army that still uses that as their motto, what their officer said back to King Xerxes. When you enlist for the military in Greece, you're told, hey, basically, through that motto, we crushed Xerxes, welcome to our team. Okay? So secondly, when you seek your own glory, you end up miserable. Secondly, when you don't turn to God, you turn to someone else to replace him. When you don't turn to God, you turn to someone else. Uh, Xerxes doesn't come to his senses and say, I'm a sinner, I need help, I need to turn to God. Instead, he turns to single guys. Okay, wrong decision. And the frat guys say to him, lo and behold, what, what all frat guys say um, same dumb thing. Let's go find some girls. Okay? His counselors tell him not to turn to God, but to turn to a woman. And along those lines, I will say practically it is common for single people to not turn to God in the t- It's even common for some married people to not turn to God in their greatest time of need and to instead turn to a person outside of the context of a God-honoring marriage. I've heard it said uh, best that traditional math doesn't work when we merge lives. A half person and a half person don't make a whole couple. That's not the way the math works. Only two whole people make a whole couple, right? Right? And so Xerxes needs God. And maybe you've been looking everywhere for a relationship and you need God. And even when we do enter into a relationship, we give a person a job description that only God can possibly fulfill. We're looking for someone never to fail us and, and, and never to leave us and always to help us and never to hurt us. And here Xerxes loses a wife loses a war, he desperately needs God, and yet he wants a woman. So the frat guys come up with a plan that resembles in every way a reality show of our day. They say, let's do the Bachelor, Persia edition. And they round up a bunch of beautiful girls, virgins, and treat them to a spa for an entire year, if you can even imagine this. I mean, I, I think Shannon smells great, but I cannot imagine her after being in a spa for an entire year. I mean, that's crazy. And that's what happens. And, and it's, it's remarkable that some 2,500 years later, we have TV shows that follow a very similar format. Remember, the times change. Human hearts do not. The third big idea. When you use everyone, you love no one. When you use everyone, you love no one. The frat guys go out and choose a bunch of likely teenagers to 20-somethings based on their beauty. And then Xerxes is going to choose his favorite based on her beauty, and bedroom performance. And we say, rightly, well, that's disgusting. But practically and tragically, is this or isn't it the way that many men operate today? Many men want to sample the options as if Spending a lifetime with that man is like the grand finale for the lucky winner. After all, he's a king to be worshipped, or so he thinks. Verses 5 through 11. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the city, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Finally, here she is, the gal that the book is named for, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. This young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Let's keep going. And when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women for the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known to her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So again, likely teenage girl is sent by the king's order to the king's palace. It's important to know that Esther is an orphan, she is um, an orphan that her cousin Mordecai um, basically adopted and assumed responsibility for okay and heggai that's the eunuch in charge of her what is it a eunuch uh, we we mentioned it last week. These were the guys that were castrated um, and placed in charge of all the women, so as Uh, to not tempt the women to be with those men instead of the king. Okay, that's what a eunuch is. So Hegai is in charge of the women, um, and he promotes uh, Esther. Okay, so she eats a nicer uh, food. Uh, She has a, a more comfortable bed at this point. She's living a premium Uh, World of sorts inside the harem, and a key piece of information is that she hasn't let on to anybody that she's a what? A Jew, right? And she's in the city of Susa because her people, the Jews, were captured by King Nebuchadnezzar, another king, um, had formerly uh, exiled Jewish people to Babylon. The book of Daniel tells us about all of this, and then. This king named Cyprus, just to quickly summarize, um, in in books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see this. He's a good king. He doesn't believe in slavery. He sends the Jewish people back to their homeland to worship their uh, God. And these pagan nations have yet to be evangelized by a Christian church, so to be away from the land where Abraham dwelt, where Isaac dwelt, where Jacob dwelt, was in a way to be away from the presence of... Of God in the temple that he dwelt in. So, Mordecai's family, and as a result, Esther, was among the families that decided to stay in Persia and did not return to Israel. Okay, are you following me? Yep. All right. So, they should have gone home when they had the choice. They chose to stay. Isaiah had even prophesied that God's people were to return to Jerusalem. Mordecai's family had assimilated. They'd grown comfortable for a number of reasons we'll never know or fully understand. They stayed in disobedience. Okay, so Mordecai did not want to walk toward God. I'm going to give you a little bit of a different twist than you may have heard on this story. He didn't want to walk with God. He tells Esther, don't tell Esther. Anybody that we worship the God of the Bible, what he meant was the faith that I have in private, not the faith that I have in public. Mordecai was in the city of Susa, eating foods he wasn't supposed to eat as a Jew, engaging in holidays he wasn't supposed to engage in as a Jew, living where he's not supposed to live as a, as a Jew. He is a, is a character that we might say stands compromised. He's a character that we would say is, uh, has a foot in the world and a foot in the church. He's a character that we might say is lukewarm. He's someone we might say is a cultural Christian only. How many of you know some people like that? Maybe don't raise your hand or point to your neighbor. Um, they call themselves Christian, but indeed they are not living for God, are not obeying God. It may even be you this morning. You say, I'm not an atheist. I, I do believe well, but are you living for Jesus? Would the evidence hold up in the court of your life if you met your heavenly father? This is Mordecai. And he does, by the way, a very good thing in that he adopts Ed- Esther. He's her closest uh, living male relative. Um, but he takes her, this is where he turns bad. He takes her to the auditions for The Bachelor. He does. He does. Is he concerned for her? He is. He walks by the gate daily. He checks on her. But does he say anything? He does not. He doesn't do anything. Mordecai is is a guy that I'll try to be very clear by the way when when I'm talking about the Bible and when I'm giving it an interpretation this is an interpretation of his character. But I'll tell you that I think Mordecai is a man who sins by omission, not commission. In other words, it's not what he does. It's not what he commits. It's what he does not do. Therein lies his sin. It's not obvious sins. That's what Xerxes does. But like Adam in the garden, Mordecai doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Mordecai's sin is that he doesn't say or do anything. I hope you realize, men, I'll talk just to men for a minute, we're supposed to speak, we're supposed to act, especially when it involves women. Amen. God forbids. As dads, if, if I may might turn this practically, that we just say, well, she's a teenager now. I'm gonna leave all of her decisions up to her. So I'm gonna I'm gonna allow her to date a total loser that does not believe in in God, and in so doing, I'm even gonna condone premarital sexual relationships. Not in what I'm saying she should do, but in what I'm not saying she should not do. And because I'm really stressed out about it, I'm going to text her often. I don't want to make a scene, so I'm just going to walk by the gate casually. Dads, did you know that you can dump your daughter's boyfriends? Did you know that you can dump your son's girlfriends? You absolutely can. Um, I actually did that this week. Um, It's a lost art in today's society, but my seven-year-old Levi ratted my four-year-old preschooler, Miles, out, and he says, Dad, did you know that Miles has a girlfriend? And I looked at Miles, and I said, Miles, you do not have a girlfriend. He said, yes, I do. And I said, no, you don't. And I'll tell you that my parents, when I was a kid, they dumped my girlfriend. That was in high school. They said, you can't date her anymore. It was the absolute best thing that could have happened to me. Was I mad at the time? I was livid. Was I embarrassed at the time? Absolutely. Was it good for me in time? Yes, it was. It's far easier to dump the boyfriend or girlfriend than it is your child in not being active. It's our God-given responsibility to act, to protect our daughters. Mordecai ought have, I hope you would agree, smuggle her out of the nation. Take her back to Jerusalem. Hid her, stormed the castle, whatever it it would have been. But instead, he drops her off for a year at the spa to compete with likely hundreds of other women in the fantasy suite. These are our daughters. Stay engaged. Don't just pray for them and and feel bad. Don't let the Xerxes of this world make the decisions for them. Amen. What about Esther? Well, she too says she belongs to God. She too does not show it publicly. She lives far away from home. As, if we said, as we've said, we don't get any indication that she's reading the Bible, that she's praying. She's rather passive. She hasn't spoken up to this point. She hasn't done anything. All the decisions are being made for her. And the question becomes, what's going to happen? Xerxes holds an audition. Esther's night with the king is coming. What will she do? Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of a different eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines gas. Sounds like a rapper, doesn't it? She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So the women are at the spa for a year and in the evening they go in with the king. Let me ask you a question Is there a date? There is not a date. Is there as much as a dinner? There is not a dinner. Does it start with something like, tell me about your family? Or even something as uh, simple as, what's your favorite color? I want to know a little more about you. Not remotely. It starts at bedtime. Xerxes is like a lot of guys. Let me sleep with you, and then I'll figure out if I like to get to know you. And if you could imagine the process, there's a line again, possibly hundreds of women deep. Let's say Esther is two hundred and 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 eighteen and she's she sees her date on the calendar. And, and if you please the, the king, then you're crowned queen. And if not, you may never marry or have children. You sit around and wait in the event that your name gets called to go and serve him again. And so, go, so the gals come in and the gals go out. And the gals come in and the gals go out. Do they have breakfast with the king the next morning? They do not. Do they go on a walk with the king? through the forest on the castle grounds. They do not. You need to be dressed. You need to be out of the room by the time the sun rises because he is done. You may never see him again uh, again, unless you're summoned. And we gasp. <gasps> but how many men today treat women like this? I don't want to date her. I don't want to love her. I just want her to show up at night, leave in the morning, don't call, don't text, don't email. And of course, the women at the harem talk to each other. What's he like? What happened? Can you imagine the complexity of the relationships at the house? And what's tragic is that some women in this day, like women that day, will even compete for these kinds of men. Verses 15 through 18. What's Esther going to do? When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who'd taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther wins the bachelor. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? The answer is a complicated yes. Verse 18, then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. They hadn't had a queen in four years. Here she is. It's everyone's time to meet her. National holiday. New queen. The media is there. Everybody's showing up. The king's handing out gifts. Esther wins. But it's a tragic victory. And here's a question scholars have debated for a long time. Was Esther always godly? And you can debate this on your ride home this morning if you'd like. I mean, what, the, the question is, what do we do with this story? What do we do with it? Here's what we can agree on. Xerxes is a jerk seize. Yes? Can all agree upon that. Secondly, we know or we will find out Esther is a godly woman at the end of the book. I'm not going to spoil it, but she swims against culture and she acts godly. But is she godly now? At this point in her life? The Bible says she came in, the Bible says she came out, the Bible says she won, that's all we have. Well, what did she think? We don't know. What were her motives? We don't know. What did they do in there? Well, we think we know, but we don't really know. Esther does not give us, the book, a lot of details. We're not privy to feelings. All we have are facts. And there's three main interpretations. I'll summarize them for you. Number one, Esther was always godly, amazing from beginning to end. There's a movie um, called One Night with the King. And through the whole story... um, Esther is basically memorizing verses of the Bible and quoting scriptures and leading Bible studies for the prostitutes in the harem. And when it comes to her night with the king, they treat it kind of like a wedding night, and and there's two people that are in love, and his heart is only for her, okay? I don't know that Xerxes became a saint in this moment. Somebody that lines up a few hundred women to become a man of fidelity, I don't know that that's going to happen. I'm not sure that option is, is truthful, is, is fair to the scriptures. Here's another option. Esther was an innocent victim of sexual assault. That story has been told depending on who you read. She's a poor, powerless young girl. The king commands her into the harem. She's taken against her will to sleep with a man she has not chosen, along with hundreds of other women. And this is like trafficking. Is it possible? It's possible, but also it's not probable. Why? The Bible does not say that. Elsewhere in the Bible, when there's rape, the Bible absolutely calls it rape. I think of the rape of Dinah in the Old Testament in Genesis, I think it's 34, and there are lots of other examples. The God God doesn't varnish over evil in the scriptures. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see it. The third option, Esther. Unlike Xerxes, whose character does not change, it's static. Unlike Haman, who you'll meet in upcoming weeks, who's character is always evil she has a dynamic character like most human beings that is to say that she is not like the Virgin Mary early on in her life and that like many of us God sanctifies her over the course of time the longer she's with him the more she changes She's halfway in the world, halfway in God's kingdom, kind of sinning, kind of obeying, kind of spiritual, kind of not. She's conflicted, and so are many people today, many in the mill church who call this their home. And I think it's a great option for us to treat Esther's character in this way in the way that we ought to find hope in her story. God takes people that are not walking with him, and he gives them grace. She's not reading scripture. She's not tithing. She's not walking with God. But God is walking with Esther. Amen. And through his hand of providence... He's working through the good and bad decisions that she makes. He's still with her. He's still patient with her. He's waiting for her. How encouraging is that? And you may say this morning, I'm here and I'm not walking with God. How encouraging is it to know that God is still walking with you? Still loving you. You haven't been committed to him, but he's committed to you. You haven't pursued him, but he's pursuing you. That's who he is. And he's here today, and he's giving all of us grace, even though we don't deserve it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond to your nudging, to your convicting voice, to the Holy Spirit's act in our lives, Lord, that we would not rebel, that we would not be obstinate, that we would not walk or run away from you, God, but that we would see that you're here to help us, that you love us, that you are so different than Xerxes. And Lord, that we'll say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.